Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I don't know about you guys, but that, uh, that last point of Tom's sermon, what was it, the recipients? That was like the most encouraging piece, because you get to the end, you're like, man, like how far short I fall. That was at least how it was hitting me. And like, wow, yeah, it was being spoken to people <laughs> weak like me as well. Uh, these promises were given. So I hope that was encouraging to you guys as it was to me. All right, so back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, last week we finished up lesson 2 the second of the three lessons from Paul's thanksgiving to shape our priorities. And that second lesson consisted of three virtues that ought to be a priority for us. And you guys remember those, just review here. A work motivated by faith, a labor motivated by love, and a perseverance motivated by hope. And this week we'll start into the third lesson, the priority of evidences of election. So as we jump back in, let me just read for us the passage. I hope you have your Bibles open. You can start reading. We'll start in verse 2 and read through verse 7. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading verses 2 through 7. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you as we mention you in our prayers. Because, we're giving thanks because... We are incessantly remembering your work motivated by faith and your labor motivated by love and your perseverance motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. And we also thank God for you because we know, brothers beloved by God, your election or God's choice of you. And we know that because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit And with full conviction, just as you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And, a second way we know that you are elect, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord by means of receiving the word in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and Achaia. So this third lesson in verses 4 through 7 is really the second reason Paul's giving thanks. So don't miss the enumeration. It's getting confusing, right? It's the third lesson, but the second reason, because the first lesson was just the priority of thanksgiving. That wasn't one of Paul's reasons for giving thanks. It's really the second two lessons that consist in his reasons for giving thanks. And so lesson two was the first of his reasons. Lesson three is the second of his reasons for giving thanks. When I say reasons for giving thanks, we could even say that for which he gives thanks. And this, is the, this reason is the evidence that they are God's elect. And this reason, unlike the last one, which just consisted of one verse, this one extends over four verses from four to seven. Verses four, five, six, and seven. Today, we're going to limit ourselves just to verse 4. That's all we'll be looking at. But since this all holds together, I want to start with kind of a a quick overview of how all four verses hold together and the role of verse 4 in that. So keep your eye on your Bible in front of you as I explain this. Verse 4, Paul gives us here the summary statement. We thank God because we know you are God's elect, is essentially what he says there. 
Then verses 5 through 7 explain how he knows that. What's the evidence he's looking for that indicates that? Verses 5 through 7. You'll notice that verse 5 begins with either because or for, depending upon your translation. Those are just various ways to indicate that what Paul's about to go into here are reasons, evidences for what he just claimed. So that's how verse 5 begins. And then he's going to give two evidences. The first is in verse 5, where he says, essentially, the Spirit's power is seen in their conviction about truth. The Spirit's power is seen in their conviction about truth, where he says, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Then the second evidence is in verses 6 and 7. I think I might have a slide here. Yeah, there we go. Now you guys can see the, the breakdown there. The second evidence is in verses 6 and 7. You should see verse 6 begins with like an and. So you got this because, verse 5, and, verses 6 and 7. That and is connecting the two evidences of their election. I summarize this, this second one as essentially their modeling of joy in highly distressing circumstances. This is where he says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord by means of receiving the word in much affliction with joy provided by the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all who are believing in Macedonia and Achaia. So that's how these four verses hold together. First with this reason that he gives thanks because he knows of their election and then the evidences he sees there. As we dive into these verses though, I want to keep before us kind of what is the application? What, what, are we, what am I saying is the relevance of this thanksgiving Paul gives? I want to keep that before us. Ensure we don't forget about that. Paul thanks God for these evidences because they're a priority to him. And they're a priority to God, the God who inspired Paul in writing this, right? So these are a priority to Paul. They're a priority to God. And if they're a priority to God... They should be a priority to us as well. So as we move through this third lesson, this third priority, we just need to keep asking ourselves, how does this compare to my own priorities? And what would it look like for this to be a priority for us? And I've often been encouraging us as we think about the application here to think about priorities, like the priority in two directions. One is our priority for ourselves, for our own lives, but then also our priorities for other people. What's, what's most important for us in those people's lives? So the people around us, our, our kids, our parents, our family members, our friends, fellow church members, whoever it might be, what are our priorities for them? So we need to be growing in these being our priorities. There are all kinds of things we want for ourselves and for others. And there are things God wants for us and for others. And those don't always align, do they? It kind of relates to what... Pastor Drian spoke of today about, you know, praying in the name of Jesus. It means aligning, praying according to his will, right? We want our priorities to be aligned with God's priorities. And that's seen in how we pray. We've talked about this multiple times. That's seen in what we thank God for. It's seen in what we work toward. And we want our priorities in all those areas and more to align with God's priorities. So as we work through this third lesson, we want to keep considering what does this reveal about the priorities we ought to have and what would it look like for that to be a priority for us. So with that reminder, let's unpack verse four here, the summary. 
And as we jump in, let me just say that trying to figure out how to break this down and make sure I have a, a manageable amount and not overdoing it. And so in some sense, I almost hesitated just to stick with verse 4 because it seems almost a bit too little to cover. But yet, to go on to the first, the first lesson would have been overwhelming. So the, the first reason, the first evidence. So in many ways, it's kind of an entry point setting us up for the evidences in the next two weeks. Before I go any further and launch into this and then forget about this, I've been meaning to mention to you guys a good book along these lines. I realize you guys probably have your own things you're reading or thinking about, and that's fine. But some of you might be thinking every so often you get questions like, hey, I got time to read. What would you recommend? And this book, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, this is like a second edition, but the first edition was actually, I think it was, a call to spiritual reformation priorities from Paul and his prayers. Um, so if you, you might have read the first edition, not recognize it. But Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson, essentially he goes through Paul's prayers, kind of like what we're doing, and learns about his priorities from this. He, I don't think he covers this passage in here, or at least not in depth, but I remember reading this book a number of years ago and it being very helpful. So I haven't read the second edition, I read the first edition. This actually... Matt's. I stole this out of his office, so you could see the one you'll find on Amazon. Sorry, Matt, you didn't know that, did you? <laughs> no, you already have it. <laughs> okay, so Paul thanks God for the evidence in the lives of the Thessalonians that they are God's elect and that they are among, that is, that they are among those whom God has mercifully chosen to save. Now, the first thing that probably comes to your mind, and understandably so, is it's a bit perplexing to say that he, that Paul, for Paul to say that he knows someone is elect. Like, Paul, how could you possibly know that? Like, do you have some kind of inside access to, to God's elect list, the, the chosen ones? How do you know that? And the way Paul says it may initially surprise us. But I think as we talk this through, it'll be helpful to understand how Paul gets here and why this actually isn't such a extreme or surprising or outlandish statement. So I'm going to try to explain this briefly, not drag it out, but I need you to track with me, okay? Some really basic connections, but focus in for like the next 60 seconds. Well, please focus in until we're done, but <laughs> extra focused for the next 60 seconds. Okay, so what we naturally think of in two steps, Paul here collapses to one step. So this full version is kind of how it makes more sense to us if you expand what Paul's saying. Election leads to conversion, which leads to a transformed life. This seems to be a basic idea in Paul. Is that making sense so far? If God's elected someone, they will be converted. They will come to faith in Christ. And if they're converted, their life will be transformed by that grace God works in them. So that seems to be the full form, but Paul here gives it to us in a bit of an abbreviated form. So here he basically moves directly between election and a transformed life, assuming that middle piece, conversion. And it makes sense. If election leads to conversion, leads to transformed life, then it's true to say election leads to a transformed life, right? It's just you're getting directly from point A to point Z without mentioning everything in between, right? Just going directly. That's where it always leads. If God elects someone, it will end in a transformed life. Um, but there are obviously other things God does in between as well. So that's where Paul's going. But now he's basically with this logic in mind, he's now going backwards, kind of working evidentially. 
So he's saying now, I can see a transformed life, then that must point to election. Now, if you're someone who was like homeschooled, classically educated, took, took logic, so, do you think this would be a homeschool joke? I'm not going to make a homeschool joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually had the privilege of getting like logic lessons, you're probably thinking, wait, this doesn't follow. Because there could be other things that lead to a transformed life by other routes rather than simply this route. But in Paul's mind, he's not sealing up the argument because he's assuming that this sort of a transformed life can only come about by means of God's grace working through election and conversion. You guys track me there? So because of that, he's able to say, if I see a transformed life like this in Christ, I can be certain that person's been converted and they've been elected. Or maybe it's a proof that it is the other way rather than it's open-ended like you had posited. Say that again. Well, it's, you could also see it as then a proof that that election then is the only way to have transformed life that rather than, oh, it could mean multiple things. I'm not sure I'm fully following there. So I think that transformed life does go back to election because Paul didn't see any other route to get to a transformed life. Right. Is that fair? You were trying to say something else that I'm missing, right? And you're graciously saying, I'm just going to drop it because you aren't getting it. (laughs) Paul's just giving us the the error the other way. Yes, yes. Essentially, he's able to reverse it from an evidential perspective. It's not that a transformed life leads to election, but evidentially now a transformed life demonstrates or proves. Is that what you use the word proof? Yeah, it's proof of election. Is that what you were getting at? It's okay. <laughs> Thanks for being gracious with me, not, not understanding here. Um, yeah, hopefully, that, hopefully I've been clear enough, though, for most people to, to track with what Paul's getting at here. So, as we keep moving through this, it's going to be helpful to do two things. Number one, on the one hand here in verse 4, to just, to, so that we don't lose the main point, you can think of basically it's being evidences of conversion. Paul doesn't say that, does he? Paul says evidences of election, but to keep it really simple and to avoid having to make these jumps in our mind, just think evidences of conversion. I think that's generally what Paul's getting at. That's the main point. We could say, uh, you know, essentially evidences here of conversion. We thank God because we know that you have been genuinely converted because, and then these evidences. And this makes sense. Paul has labored among them, among the Thessalonians, at great cost to himself, for the sake of genuine conversions to Christ. And Paul is now hearing from Timothy, who's reporting back to him about how they're doing in the midst of persecution. Paul's reporting how they're flourishing in Christ in the midst of that. And he's saying, these are all, that this good report is evidence of the genuineness of their conversions. And he's full of thankfulness. And so that's the main point here in verse 4. We're going to talk a bit more about why would Paul say election? What's, what's the additional import there? But that's the main point. We too ought to highly value transformation in the lives of professing believers. That transformation lives of professing believers ought to be very important. That's something we learn from Paul that ought to drive some of our priorities we're talking about now that maybe I can put just in contrast to the way some other, I would say, well-meaning believers sometimes simplify it. Sometimes it's 
we're inclined to think in terms of conversion being the only thing that matters, right? Once someone has trusted Christ and their eternity is now guaranteed, then why waste any more time on them, right? That, that time just focusing on little incremental growth and holiness could be better spent elsewhere helping someone avoid hell. Are you guys tracking me? Do you guys recognize that way of thinking? And there's, that's a priority too. But one of the things we learned from Paul is that Paul was willing, rather than continuing on and planting more churches, sometimes to circle back to those churches to make sure that they're well-established and growing more mature. That was important. Efforts focused in discipleship in any part of the local church on strengthening the body that's already here are efforts well spent. That's not to say that it's acceptable to neglect evangelism, but those are efforts well spent. That's not a mistake. That's following Paul's uh, priorities here. So that's the overarching point. Now, what we'll spend our rest of our time on here is asking, what is Paul getting at, though, by speaking of election, by going back to their election? Why would he go to that? give you two reasons here. Two reasons Paul looks beyond their conversion to election. First, first reason, the use of people of God language, the use of people of God language highlights the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. The use of people of God language highlights the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. Now, to understand this, we must understand that in the New Testament church, any sort of functional division between Jew and Gentile has been removed. That seems basic to us, doesn't it? We don't really think much about that. But it's important to keep in mind, in the New Testament church, any sort of functional distinction between Jew and Gentile has been removed. And that marks a change from the situation prior to the coming of Christ. In the church age... Jew and Gentile are equally people of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that in Christ's death, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. There's no longer any basis or reason for a distinction. Now, it's one thing to say that's true in theory, right? Like that's what's been accomplished. But that then has to be realized in actual churches meaning there are no distinctions being created. Gentiles aren't being told, you've got to observe food laws. You've got to meet all of these um, boundary markers of what it means to belong, to be a Jew. And that's what Paul really spends so much of his time in his letters doing. Like in Galatians, right? In Galatians, essentially, they're saying Gentiles can't be a part of the people of God on the same basis. They have to, in some sense, Judaize. They must, in some sense, become Jews, They can't enter simply as Gentiles. And Paul is fervent to make sure that's not not allowed to take root and remain there. Or maybe it's not something that's so explicitly getting at the gospel. Sometimes it's something like in Romans 14 and 15. It's something, something as simple as they're just saying, hey, it might be better if you were to regard these days or those days. But there's beginning to be this division in the church. Now, to understand that, that, that's a familiar concept to us, but to understand why that was so significant, we do need to keep in mind that this is not the way it always was. 
Paul in Ephesians 2 says that the dividing wall was torn down in the death of Christ. Prior to that, under the old covenant, there was legitimately a distinction. Gentiles didn't have equal access. Exactly what Paul explains in Ephesians 2.11 and following. That's what Paul was raised under. In fact, Paul was particularly zealous for this as a Pharisee. And if you look at the book of Acts in several instances, you'll note that Paul can go into a synagogue and he can preach that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. And he meets with inquiries and interest, some conversions, some people more apathetic. But as soon as then Gentiles start turning to the Lord and flocking in, and Paul says they can be admitted on equal terms, that they don't have to first become Jews, they don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to keep the food laws, there is an uproar. And that is when the Jewish people who haven't trusted Christ begin to turn on him and want to kill him. Are you picking up on that, though? Like, that's the fervor that that was had about this issue. And that's why, this is what Paul, though, is about proclaiming. This is a reality And I want to emphasize that because as we think about priorities, some of them as a converted person, as a follower of Christ now, might carry over from before your conversion. There might be a sense in which things that are important to the Lord just by his common grace was taught to you by your parents, right? You don't have to completely replace that and make those priorities now. That's going to be rare, probably. There's a lot of areas that you're probably going to fairly easily be able to adopt priorities that you should have in Christ. But think about this area for Paul. This was not an easy area, was it? He had to radically reorient his thinking such that now there was, for him, a priority of bringing Jew and Gentile into the same churches and it being there on equal terms without there really being any distinction between them. Are you guys beginning to pick up on that, the the difficulty of that transfer, that transition? And that's important because there will be times where even, where however long you've been in Christ, you might have been in Christ now for 20 years, 40 years, and there might still be things when you're reading Scripture, you're realizing, that surprises me. I'm not sympathetic with that. That seems to reflect priorities, interests, agendas in the biblical authors inspired by God, God's own agendas that don't quite sync up with mine. And what's the only proper response to that? We yield to that, right? We adopt those as our own priorities. But that can be painful. That can be really painful. In fact, our first inclination usually is how can I reinterpret that passage? We don't want to say it quite like that, but that's usually how it goes. Surely there's got to be another interpretation. Surely it doesn't mean that. That would be contrary to common sense, right? Because common sense is usually whatever I've thought for a decade or more. But that would be contrary to common sense. And so surely there's got to be a different way I can interpret this. Maybe I can find a commentator who will agree with my way of taking this. But the key is to yield to it. So with this first uh, reason, Paul looks beyond their conversion to election... I think this first one is that he's highlighting the inclusion of Gentiles and the people of God. I want to draw out by way of application that 
this would have been very difficult for Paul to accept, and yet what Paul's modeling for us is fully yielding to this and embracing it as a priority for him. And that encourages me, and I hope it encourages you, to do the same when we find that it's going to require difficult changes to our priorities to align them with God's. Some other uh, pieces we can note here, when I say the use of people of God language, what am I referring to? Well, for one thing, elect, right? The idea of election throughout most of the Old Testament is applied to who? Who are God's elect people? Israel, right? But now he's writing to a church that, yes, includes Jews, but is predominantly Gentile, and he's referring to all of them as God's elect. We just don't, we don't feel how surprising that would have been to many in the first century. Not to the Gentiles, but particularly to Jewish believers. But he goes beyond that. Not only does he call them elect, notice what else it says. He calls them brothers, right? So here is Paul, a Jew, referring to mostly Gentiles as brothers. So we see that category as well. They obviously belong to the same people, the same family. That's familial language. What other people of God language is there? Well, there's also that reference to being beloved by God, right? You see all of those references there in verse 4? Brothers, beloved by God. Beloved by God seems like a simple enough designation. But it's interesting, when you look throughout the Old Testament where that language comes up, it is almost always set right alongside election language. It is. It's often treated almost synonymously with being elect, to be beloved by God. So when Paul uses that language here, it seems like he's using language that they would in their own minds naturally associate exclusively with Israel, with Jewish people. But he's now applying all these terms to mostly Gentiles, to the whole church, both of them equally. So, the, the first reason Paul goes beyond their conversion to their election is that this language, calling them God's elect, a term that previously only applied to Israel, calling them brothers, even though he's a Jew and they are primarily Gentiles, and calling them beloved by God, another term, as I mentioned, associated in the Old Testament with God's covenant people and essentially synonymous with being God's elect. All this language emphasizes the full inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God and on equal terms with Jews. So Paul's drawing attention to the fact that this significant priority for God in this present era is being realized among the Thessalonians. He's seeing it worked out in multiple churches, but in the Thessalonian church. And for this, he thanks the Lord. And there's a number of ways we could have applied that piece, right? Basically, the essence of Paul's working toward applying people of God language to people you wouldn't normally think of that applying to. You could think of, you know, the the priority of some of of an openness, of an inclusivity, of the proper kind in our church, right? We don't want to be a church that does anything that encourages some sort of like ethno-exclusivity, Right? We're only for this type of people or that type of people. That would be a totally appropriate application here of that. But I thought maybe one of the most helpful, at least for me, is just seeing how Paul 
would have had to have gone against so many things that would have seemed natural to him to adopt this as a priority and have that as a model for us, to be willing to set aside, to, to kill certain priorities that aren't priorities for God and create whole new ones that are priorities for God but had never been priorities for us previously. Or sometimes even, we've already got the priority and we just realize it's got to be elevated, right? It's got to become more important or some of my priorities might be a priority to God but it's got to come down the list some. Now, a second reason Paul goes beyond conversion to election. Before I go on, do you have any thoughts or questions about that? You guys are really quiet. All right. Second reason. Election highlights God's sovereign initiative which guarantees God's preservation. Election highlights God's sovereign initiative, which guarantees God's preservation. So while conversion, going back to the idea that potentially Paul could have just said, these are evidences of your conversion rather than of your election, while conversion, someone's turning to Christ, certainly does involve God's sovereign initiative. For sure it does. Someone's turning to Christ involves God's sovereign initiative. But I would say election more obviously highlights God's sovereign initiative. You guys seeing that? Election more obviously highlights God's sovereign initiative in their salvation. And because of God's sovereign initiative in their salvation... We could say Paul and they can be confident of God's sovereign follow-through in their salvation. If God's the one who initiated it, and he says he'll finish it, and the initiation didn't start with them, then we can be pretty confident God can take care of it going on through. Right? It doesn't depend upon them. And for believers who are under a lot of pressure to stop following Christ, as these believers were, persecution, that's an encouraging fact, isn't it? That what you're currently doing following Christ is something that wasn't really originally your idea. God is the one who's been working in you and bringing this about in you, and he's the same one who can cause you to persevere. As those, we ourselves, as we who have not I think by and large, been tested in the ways that the Thessalonians' faith has been tested by persecution, sometimes we can step back. I hear people say this sometimes, right? And it's not necessarily to criticize them. I think it's being humble and honest is, wow, I don't know how I would respond to that kind of persecution. Have you guys ever thought that, heard that? And I think that's that's how, puts you in a helpful spot to sympathize with where they are and how this truth applies there. You following Christ didn't start with you. He took the initiative. He's the one who also sovereignly controls the circumstances you're in. And so if he started that work in you, and if he, in his providence, brings you into a place of persecution, you can trust him to strengthen your faith and preserve you through to the end. He will see it through to the end. So that second reason that I think Paul is speaking of election rather than just their conversion is that election highlights God's sovereign initiative, 
which guarantees God's preservation. Let me be clear with these two reasons. Paul doesn't tell us specifically why he goes beyond conversion to election, right? There's nothing in the text that says that. I'm trying to look at Paul's letters more broadly and say, what are priorities for Paul? What are, what are ideas Paul often associates with election that would be relevant in this context that might have driven him to use this kind of language here rather than just speaking of their conversion? All right, questions about that piece or thoughts to add? Yes. You know, in the election is uh, in Acts 16, Lydia, where it says God opened up her heart yeah, it's good. to receive. You know, and so then it's again, and so it preserves the you know, and God is the initiator, so we can't take any credit for it. Yep. And, uh, it's, totally. It's all of God, but that's a great example, I think, of it is. right there. Yes, it's a very good example. Acts 16, God opening Lydia's heart. Yeah, it's good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. Yep. When God speaks about the Essentially, the persecution trials of some sort squeeze out what's really in us. Yeah, yeah. certainly true. Yep. Also, uh, like John chapter one, verse twelve, like all we received and who believed in His name gave the right to become children of God. So the totally. invitation is, is to all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I mean, John fifteen, uh, sixteen, he says, "When you did not choose me, but I chose you." Uh, you know, so the invitation is to all. Yeah, so I'm kind of, you know, Paul doesn't get into, Paul's not explaining election here. He's sort of assuming as a category. And so here I'm just doing the same. I'm not getting into explaining election, but that would be relevant to that piece, to talking through kind of what, how, how you square that doctrine of election with other pieces that Paul also teaches. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get into that so much just because that would take us off on another, how many weeks? Another. Walker's the, uh, the estimator. Don't go there. That'll take that many weeks. I don't know why I was surprised that you were going to split this one up into a few weeks. Go ahead, Bobby. Yeah, I just had a thought, kind of walking back to the love by God yes. phrase, how easy it is to glance over that yeah. phrase. Amen. But then not feel the magnitude yeah. of the fact that we're loved by our Heavenly Father. Yeah, it's good. Eternally. Yeah. 
um, it, it's just astounding. It makes me think of John, where Christ says to his disciples, the Father himself loves you. Yes. Not just Christ, but the Trinity and, and the Father himself loves you. And to be loved by God would certainly be a great reminder for the persecution yes. that's to come. Yeah. I think when I was little, when my dad was present, I was always emboldened yeah. you know, uh, by his presence yep. and by his constant love. It's just a sweet reminder to these precious believers yep. loved by God. Yeah, yeah. You're right. That is another good encouragement. Yep. All right. I'm waiting for Jed. Jed just needs a moment to think of what he wants to share. Nothing? <laughs> okay. Jed always has something to share. And it's always good, though, Jed. That's why I try to draw it out. <laughs> he says, I'll pass. <laughs> All right. So that's verse 4. In the coming weeks, we'll jump into verses 5 and then 6 and 7, the actual evidences. That's where we're getting to more of the substance of the priorities, right? What, what are those things we want to look for in people's lives that are evidences that God's working there in his people? So verses 4 through 7 express the second thing Paul thanks God for about the Thessalonians. The whole, whole section does, all four verses. Verse 4, what we looked at today, states the summary, and then what's going to follow will be those evidences. This is, these are the evidences he knows that they are elect. And why, in this summary, does Paul draw attention to their election and call them beloved of God and brothers? So there's two primary reasons. It highlights the realization in their midst of one of God's priorities in his redemptive plan that is bringing together Jew and Gentile into one people of God. And then secondly, it also highlights God's sovereign initiative in their salvation which encourages us to trust God to finish what he began. The next two weeks, we'll start into the um, evidences, and then beyond that, Tuck will be with us for two weeks after we finish up this section. We'll finally be done with the three lessons. Are you guys getting tired of the three lessons? All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you. Even just that you have been so gracious as to reveal yourself to us. As I think back to those implications about aligning our priorities with yours, Lord, we would have no hope of even knowing what you expect without you graciously revealing yourself to us. And we thank you for this letter that you've revealed through Paul and preserved for us and pray that you would continue to nourish us, your people, with this letter, through your spirit, as we we better understand who you are and what you expect of us and the priorities we ought to have. Lord, I pray specifically with regard to these lessons that um, we would value highly whatever it is you tell us is important, even if that means making massive shifts to our own ways of thinking. And also, Lord, I pray that we would trust you in your ongoing work in our lives to keep us growing in the faith and keep us faithful and not falling away. Sometimes we're tempted to think that you've done that work to bring us to faith and then you leave us on our own to grow in that faith. And yet we know you've given us the spirit by which we continue to grow and by which you seal us until the final day. And I pray, Lord, that that would give us comfort and encouragement 
and even relating this back to what we talked about last week, give us the hope to be able to focus on the offensive work that we need to persevere in and not be distracted or um, kept from being being able to press forward with that because of our own concerns about our perseverance. I pray that for all of us, Lord, I know that people are in different spots and it hits us in different ways, but I pray that uh, whatever, however this needs to be heard by each of us, that you be working that in us this week. We pray.